My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast and on today's episode I'm just going to be taking a look at two films. I've got nothing else really much to report with what's been going on. I'm slightly busy with work and all that kind of thing and once again it was kind of interfering with the amount of films I could get round to kind of talking about within the time frame I wanted to. I have, Me and Joachim have put out another episode of the Master of Cinema cast where we took a look at John Ford's um, Two Road together. But as for today, I'm going to kick things off with a look at Catherine Bigelow's Detroit and then a look at Francis Lee's film God's Own Country. You don't know, I tell you. I was working security by Wisconsin and on Tuesday night... We heard gunfire coming from the area near the Algiers. Police was there. There was a lot of shooting. When I went in there, three kids had been killed. No. So they were killed right before you got there. I have an on-off relationship with Twitter and it kind of reminds me of a girl I was seeing a few years ago. It was fun to hang out with her every now and then, but whenever we spent longer than a few days together, it was blatantly apparent that we should stay well away from each other for our own sanity. A few weeks ago, I was in the mood for getting me some Twitter action and I decided to dive in and see what was going on as Hurricane Katrina was reaping havoc across Texas. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that I became consciously aware after watching the Mark Curtis film Hypernormalization that I had effectively turned my internet browsing into simply an echo chamber of what I believed and I found this to be personally incredibly dangerous. So what I did was I began to actively seek out news stories and news opinion and journalists and other kind of news outlets that didn't conform to how I felt, just so I could get a broader sense of opinion. And I decided, for better or worse, to follow pseudo-journalist Glenn Greenwald. And during Hurricane Katrina, he retweeted a tweet about a news reporter who had claimed to have seen looters and had reported the incident to the police. The report also mentioned in his tweet that near the looters was a dead body, nothing more, no other details whatsoever. Gleanrold was shaming the reporter for targeting people merely trying to eat and a Twitter mob had assembled and was ready for a lynching for the journalists. And I took exception to Greenwald's retweet and the pillaring that this man was receiving for two reasons. First, Graham Greenwald is the worst type of journalist on earth isn't so much as a journalist then he is a smearer of reputations through total dishonesty and a thorough lack of journalistic ethics. And what infuriates me is that Glenn Greenwald's followers don't even seem to care about this in the least. They simply want to see people dragged across coals whose opinion they don't agree with. Which leads me to point two. How I wondered from the reporter's tweet, did everyone know that the looters were taking food and that the body was not related to the looting? All we knew was that the looters were going into a supermarket and there was a body. There were no other details mentioned. So I commented with the following. Perhaps he saw them taking other things not food related and possibly the body he alludes to was related and was concerned for people's safety. Oh dear. Things started off mildly. 
did I not read the supermarket bit? Well, yes, I could go now to the supermarket and I could buy some chicken, some eggs, some pasta, milk, cheese, booze, and I could also buy a television, a pair of designer sunglasses, indeed a massive array of non-essential items that in the absence of law and order might find a welcome place in my house. And then things began to turn even worse. It was blindingly obvious that the people only wanted to have been getting food. And why, oh why, would someone like me question all this? Well, it was obvious why I would question this. It's because, obviously, I'm a racist. And then the mob descended upon me. A tweet I made about Antifa being thugs meant I was clearly a Nazi sympathiser. I had been conditioned by the mainstream media to only look at black people as criminals. And again, there was absolutely no reference to the race of the looters. Even when evidence emerged of looters ransacking an apple and a game shop, I was in fact, by criticising them apparently, showing a callous indifference to the mental trauma of the looters, stress levels and supporting corporate greed, and on and on and on. By the end of the lynching, I was a racist, a fascist, a bigot, and and after categorically proving one of the mob wrong and actually showing I had been blocked by twat Mike Cernovich for asking him what Infowars supplements he took in order to give him erections, I was still called a wanker. This was all in reaction to me merely questioning the need to publicly shame and humiliate someone simply for reporting and trying to uphold the law. I wanted more information as to what was going on. That was all. But no, this was enough to declare me a fascist wanker. And this sorry episode taught me a few things. Number one, Glenn Greenwald is still a terrible journalist. Two, people are extremely aggressive to people they don't know. And three, people resort to the racism card as an almost default way of smearing and intimidating. Which lead me to Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. Now, I was hesitant to talk about the film primarily because I feared if I saw it and disliked it, my dislike for it would be translated as a form of callous indifference to the victims of racism, or that I was somehow endorsing the very obviously racially motivated crimes in the film. We live in an age where race is very much back on the agenda, and as I sadly discovered, it's very easy to find yourself being labelled one thing or another without any justification. Now to be clear, I have issues, to put it mildly, with the hysteria surrounding identity politics from both the left and the right, and I believe it has led to any form of rational dialogue on the subject being largely impossible. I dislike the film Moonlight quite intently, not because I'm a racist homophobe, but primarily because I found it to be utterly ridiculous and so painfully conservative that I could virtually see Theresa May's advisers telling her to name it her film of the year so as not to look like Skeletor's mum to the masses. Moonlight unsurprisingly won the Oscar for the Best Picture this year, and this is a direct relation to the Oscars So White controversy. And in the meantime, the Donald Trump president has seemingly given voice to a lunatic far right and a hysterical far left who think that either side is about to take control of America. Throw into the mix Black Lives Matter, Charlottesville and various other flashpoints and one could believe America is heading for a new race war. It isn't. 
But the imaginary and indeed the very issues relating to race are beginning to seep their way into the consciousness of filmmakers and with the likes of Moonlight and its reception, I believe this is a direct result of people trying to extol their liberal ideas in the form of appreciation for film that is thoroughly undeserving of such widespread critical acclaim. It seems to be a new norm for film criticism to talk about the film's message and not the aesthetics of the film. It's all message and as far as I'm concerned I want to get talk about I want to get back to talking about films as films, not what they represent or what they're trying to say. Now, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit tells the story of the titular race riots in the city in the 1967. The film begins with a rather simplistic animation explaining the history of black migration into the city before a raid on a speakeasy in 1967 leads to open revolt, culminating in the National Guard being called in to restore law and order. The bulk of Detroit, however, takes place in the Algiers Hotel, where police raided the building thinking it had come under fire from some of the guests. This tragic incident led to the deaths of three black men and the police in question being exonerated for their crimes. Now, I stated in the previous video many times that I'm not particularly bothered about historical accuracy in films, and I feel having watched Detroit, I need to make an adjustment to how I feel about this statement. Now, Detroit is a film about a real incident and one relating to the murder of three people. Naturally, we do not side with those doing the apparent murdering, but what I believe should be made abundantly clear from the outset of the film is that what we are being shown is a mixture of fact and indeed fiction. Yes, this does come at the end, but I feel that Detroit should have made this abundantly clear at the start. For me personally, when I read this, part of me was a little annoyed. I had totally bought into Detroit and I was there buried in the film and with the characters and felt that when the film spessed up so to speak it actually detracted from my appreciation of it leading me to ask many questions about the approach Bigelow had taken. Had I been more aware of this from the start I would have simply accepted the film on the terms it was stating a work of narrative fiction based on a true story. In short, creative license would have been a given and I would have probably just assumed this from the off anyway. Instead, Detroit made me do some research, which is a good thing after all, but the more I read about the events in the Algiers Hotel, the less I thought of the film in general. In short, I'm not totally convinced that Detroit was the correct material for either Bigelow or indeed a major Hollywood studio to tackle. I believe Bigelow shows us what she was really intending in Detroit with the film's excruciating hour-long sequence between the police and the men and women in the hotel. This is what she excels at and certainly in her last two outings, Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, her best film as well as I, I would contend. But fundamentally my issue with the film was I didn't think that it should be so narrow in its scope. Its very title suggests a bigger story, and indeed there is one there to tell. Now Bigelow is certainly a superb director, and the mock execution scenes in the hotel were painful to watch. Not knowing what would actually happen made them all the more awful to experience. Yet I felt the sheen, or indeed the needs of Hollywood, in this case an action and suspense film, made the film more about the immediacy of what we were seeing on screen than it did the overall importance of the events in general. 
Now the direct result of all this was if we're going to spend so much time showing these awful events, Bigelow and Wright and Mark, Mark Boll were forced to give us a resolution, albeit a very unsatisfactory one in the form of a brief and thoroughly unsatisfying courtroom for the last 20 minutes of the film that felt tacked on and strangely superfluous to the film as a whole. And there was another slightly annoying aspect of the film, in that it was made in Boston and not Detroit. And really you have to ask, why not? Why not go back there and engage with the locals who were present and actually try to try to explore the complexities and the nuances of the riots? Now I don't think the film necessarily needed to be made by a black person, nor do I think it says anything particularly insightful that it was not. However, I cannot help but think that but Bowen and Bigelow are more interested in using them right as a framing device to explore what can be done in terms of constructing a taunt thriller than an actual general exploration of the history of the Detroit riots. Now I could level the accusation at myself that I'm simply wanting Detroit to be about something that it is not. I call it Prometheus Syndrome, but I feel it does raise questions as to what the point of the film actually is. Is it supposed to hold up a mirror to contemporary society? Well, if it does, then I'm not really sure it's saying anything at all. Is it supposed to educate us on what the Detroit riots were about? Well, if it was, it doesn't. Are we supposed to feel angry about it? Well, certainly, we does achieve this. But to me, Detroit felt like a confused film as to what it was actually trying to do. And the result was a muddled affair. And it was certainly not without its merits. My overriding praise for the film comes in the form of its performances, and without doubt the standout is Will Poulter or Officer Philip Krauss, the ringleader of the police. Physically, Poulter makes for a terrifying protagonist. It might sound like an oxymoron, but he's only 24, and visually he looks like a young man in his 20s. Yet also simultaneously, I was able to believe that he was far greater than his actual age. He's like one of those young conservatives you see. As soon as they open their baby-faced mouths, you can easily close your eyes and see them in the House of Lords, demanding single mothers are sent to the workhouse for the punishment of having a child. When we see Krauss, he's on the beat, and with Paul Greengrass regular director of photography Barry Ackroyd on cinematography duties, Detroit has a quasi-documentary feel, in the same vein as something like Geopontikova's The Battle of Algiers, and occasionally it lulls you into a full sense of disbelief that you are watching a documentary. We could be forgiving for believing this was a kind of fly-on-the-wall documentaries from a 60s version of the TV series Cops. And when we first meet Krauss, he doesn't speak disparaging about the black population in Detroit. He almost sounds sympathetic. Was he going to be the good cop, I thought, well, no, because very quickly, we see him shoot someone in the back with a shotgun. And Detroit quickly sets its stall out. We see a crime committed. The police look to press a murder charge against him, and he is sent back off on the street. Porter plays Krauss with a total understatement. His ability to lie almost fooled me. Was there something I'd actually missed at the start of the film? He did actually shoot someone in the back after all. Was he in danger? Had I looked away from the screen when someone was pointing a gun at him? I don't know. And that's the genius of the performance. Krauss from the off is a character that we instantly fear, not through his physical attributes, but because we can instantly tell that he is a character who is clearly not fit to be in this situation. And by simply letting him get on, get on with it, we are all immediately aware of what he is capable of doing. 
Now, John Boyer was another standout, and I will be honest, I did not like his performance in Force Awakens, which I actually put down to J.J. Abrahams. I liked the character, I just didn't think he has done any justice and kind of relegated him to a kind of a joke. Here, though, he's given time to breathe and brings the film a gravitas that never boils over into pantomime. Indeed, I actually thought there were echoes of Sidney Potier in him, which I suppose must be a compliment, I would hope. Now, his character of Melvin exists on a fine line. On the one hand, he is a black man from Detroit, yet he's also on the side of authority. Yet he's no Uncle Tom, so to speak. This is a man placed in a uniquely terrifying situation. He is by colour alone a figure of distaste for the white soldiers and police and a figure of hate from his own community and who see him as a kind of sellout. Now Boyer plays Melvin perfectly. He's very much his own man, making his own decisions in order to try to achieve the best outcomes. Yet he's not self-serving. You don't feel that he is doing this for kind of self-preservation. Moreover, you get the impression he wants to stop anything bad from happening, which means playing a deadly game of never identifying with either side. Algie Smith as Larry Reed gives a fine performance for sure, but Bowen uses the character as a cipher for the film's more weightier themes and indeed possibly some of its larger missteps. I felt Boyle tried to distill the trite rights into Reed's character. Reed was unable to rejoin the band, the dramatics, after the riots, and Bigelow and Boyle go to great pains to show that the reason why this is as a newfound fear of white people when he effectively cannot sing when he sees a white producer in the studio after the events. This is where the film's lack of breadth really came to the fore. What about the Detroit community after these events? How did they fight back and how did the city move on or indeed confront what had happened? Reed seems to suggest that crimes against black people are merely visceral brutality and not widespread socio-economic issues, suggesting that by merely rooting out rotten apples, the problem will go away. Overall, Detroit was a massive disappointment for me. It doesn't feel urgent somehow, it didn't anger me or it didn't move me how I thought. Its final 20 minutes are tonally jarring. It is superbly acted for sure, yet it's very narrow scope. But it is essentially an exploration of tension and the effects of stress on characters. And we've been there before. And in an age where race is so much in our conscious, this film feels strangely irrelevant. And in reality, I genuinely believe it should have provoked a lot more conversation than it actually did. Do they call thee Georgie or something? Georgie. Whatever, get in. I'll uh, need help. I could have managed. I've done so far. Yeah, of course you have. We're not running a charity for waste and strays, like. It's perfect for me. It's beautiful here, but lonely, you know? Spring is the most beautiful. Just so you're clear, he's here to work. <laughs> so I'm on your shoulders now. What do you want? I want it to be different.
way I want to do it. I don't watch enough British films, and it's a sad fact that they more often than not feel like homework. From terrible, unfunny comedies to misery tourism, British films often make me feel like I wonder why I bothered, and it really is a shame, because I really do want to watch more, which was why I was instantly intrigued when I heard about Francis Lee's God's Own Country. I was actually genuinely excited to see it. Despite the inevitable Brokeback Mountain comparisons, which is a kind of form of criticism that I really detest actually, in fact, um, right from the days when I used to work in music, when um, people would say, they would describe their band as being something like Nick Cave meets the Beatles or something like that, and I always used to roll my eyes when they would kind of think, why can't you just be something slightly more original? But anyway, I go off on a tangent. God's Own Country gave me hope without seeing a single frame of it on the basis that the director seemed to have made such a personal film. This wasn't someone imagining the destitution of inner city Britain or writing some terrible trite comedy about br the British class system. And the more I found out about Lee, the more I admired the journey he had been on to actually get the film made. Now the result, I'm pleased to say, isn't just Brokeback Mountain in the Yorkshire Dells, it's God's Own Country, and it already is one, an early contender for one of my films of the year. It isn't just a love story, it's a film about coming to terms with one's responsibility in life and the forces that stop us from moving on with our lives. Johnny, played by Josh O'Connor, lives and works in a farm in, in Yorkshire with his father and grandmother. His father is partially disabled due to a stroke and grandmother spends her day doing the household chores. Their life appears to be stuck in time. The house is old fashioned. The farm, although not dilapidated, clearly needs some investment and Johnny is essentially doing everything by himself. All his friends have moved away and when we do meet some back from university, his sense of isolation is shown in his hostility and sense of victimisation. He has been left behind while they have moved on. He spends most of his evenings getting drunk and has a form of sexual release when the occasional encounter with a young man who is part of the local farming community. With lambing season soon approaching, his father places an advert for help and along comes Georgie, played by Alex Sakanu. The pair become more and more attracted to each other and eventually become lovers, yet Johnny is still fighting his lot in life. What is his place in it and how can he find the happiness that he knows he needs? Now God's Own Country may attract attention for indeed being some form of Britain's answer to Brokeback Mountain and I find this a tenuous and slightly patronising comparison. It is very much its own thing and Francis Lee debut film is refreshingly free of many of the standard tropes that can materialise in films about gay men. For one, sexuality in the film is not a cause for angst. There's nothing for these men to come to terms with. They are both perfectly comfortable with who they are. And through this, through the sexual encounters in the film, we also get an insight into their psyche. For Johnny, it manifests itself in brief, rough encounters with another man that do not involve any form of emotional connection whatsoever. Johnny is sexually at least shown to be dominant 
until he meets Georgie, and after much sparring, their first century counter is actually more akin to a fight, with each one fighting to be the alpha male. Now, for me, rarely in films do sex scenes actually work, but here they actually have a purpose and serve the story and the characters. You can read more into them than just a quest for desire and actually genuinely see two characters actually expressing themselves through sexual encounters. And make no mistake, these are actual sex scenes, something that the ridiculous moonlight could not even show us, albeit a slight hand job off screen. And I might add as well that during these moments in the film, there were rather pathetic sniggers coming from the audience that I watched the film with, most notably from a group of ladies who sat behind me who insisted on talking through the whole film. Even when I told them to actually shut up, they had the nerve to tuck me, slightly proving my point that even when you go to the kind of the supposed art house cinema Manchester in Manchester called home, you will still find extremely annoying patrons. However, mild rant over. But it does say something about God's own country. In fact, fact, it actually goes there. And by there, I mean actual physical relations between men that aren't conservative. They do have a semblance of reality to them and crucially aren't followed by our lead characters undergoing some form of existential crisis as to what they have actually just done. No, this is sex and people enjoy having sex. Of course, in the age of Brexit, there also could be the tendency to read a little bit more into the film. Georgie is from Romania. Perhaps we could kind of go down that rabbit hole. But I never felt myself really thinking about the film in that context. I was simply engrossed in the performances of Josh O'Connor's and Alex Sakharunaru and Lee's masterful use of location. Filmed on his father's farm, clearly this is a world he knows well. He never overly romanticises the environment. Yes, it is beautiful, but it's also a hard existence. Johnny and his father are clearly wedded to a way of life that is hard and unrelenting. And despite the seeming remoteness of where they live, the lights of the wider world are always clearly visible on the horizon. It might be up in the hills, yet there's a tangible scent that another world is not too far away calling Johnny to it. If I had one slight criticism of Lee's direction, it would be the slight over-reliance on a handheld aesthetics. Why, I was wondering, was I seeing the camera shake on establishing shots of the landscape? I was recently reading a film comment special edition on Steadicam, and it really opened my eyes somewhat to handheld aesthetics and made me dislike this artistic choice a whole lot more. Steadicam is the closest thing that we have to mimicking the human eye, our vision does not jolt and judder around and there is nothing realistic about shaking a camera and trying to mimic some kind of artificial movement. For me, it's become a distraction and a recent rewatch of The Shining showed how a Steadicam holds the attention like nothing else. And you don't even need a Steadicam, you just need a camera that doesn't move all the time. And I felt that Lee had fallen into the trap of mistaking realism for a gritty handheld aesthetic. He, like many directors, is wrong, I believe, and becoming, and I'm becoming increasingly bored of seeing it. Now, yes, this is his first feature, so possibly I'm, I'm being a little hard, but hopefully time will tell. What Lee does show, however, is that small moments are deceptively simple, yet can convey so much. In one quite beautiful scene, a lamb dies, and Georgie skims the dead lamb and places the wall over another lamb that has been rejected. 
The ewe of the dead lamb takes a few sniffs and lets the lamb feed. And filmed in one take and almost silent, it actually almost moved me to tears. In one simple move, George shows his mastery of his craft and an understanding of nature, as well as symbolically showing the need in nature for support and love. Now, Lee made the actors work on an actual farm to hone their skills, and Alex Sakharov performed the skinning himself. What's interesting that whilst he's in character, he's able to perform the operation completely. Yet as soon as Lee had shouted cut, he apparently moved away and burst into tears afterwards, so traumatised what he does. And it gives such, I think, an insight into just how invested these actors are in their characters. And in another scene, Johnny has forced to take... In another scene, Johnny has to bathe his father, who has had another stroke. And he insists on performing this alone. And again, the simplicity of the scene made it all the more profound. My father is becoming increasingly frail due to Parkinson's disease. He requires more and more help each time I see him. And at some stage, I know I will have to take care of him more. In God's Own Country, we see the moment where a son is having to care for his father and take his responsibility for the reality of his life. It was, for me, one of the most heroic moments I've seen in film all year. And when Johnny accepts and understands this, we see a character literally becoming a man. Indeed, masculinity is a key theme of the film. And it might sound all men's rights of me, but there is something of a mental health crisis going on with men. And there is a, a real fight to end the stigma around it. A lot of, of it is due, I believe, to expectations placed on men, both internal and external, to adhere to a kind of idealised version of what a man should be. It's a ridiculous notion either way, yet in the man-up culture of today, unnecessary mental burden is placed on men and it often leads to tragic circumstances. When Johnny bathes his father, there is no swell of music, no hero shot, just a simplistic shot of a son now taking care of his father. And it's one of the most moving pieces of cinema I saw all year. I've heard the word visceral used a lot to describe God's own countries and it's not something that I actually took away from it. The word for me would be honest. There seems to be a very real relationship between the characters and the environment and the way they act and how this affects them. The farm has so much potential, yet it is also a prison to the past and one that has much more potential of a better future. And Lee is clearly an optimist and I won't lie, the film's finale got to me. And indeed, in the days since I saw the film, it has only grown on me more. I would have liked perhaps God's Own Country to be a slightly bigger film and that's not due to the budget I just wanted I suppose a kind of a widescreen take on this beautiful countryside and Lee opts for the 185 ratio and at times again I do feel it kind of felt like it was going down the Mike Lee route of trying to be so gritty and real when I want to see another David Lean and yes we have that in the form of Christopher Nolan I suppose but I want to see this kind of beautiful countryside given the widescreen splendour it deserves but that all being said God's Own Country is an assured debut and it's just so much more than a gay love story it's a film about so much more and Lee's sympathetic and thoughtful approach makes for an emotionally rewarding and deeply satisfying experience I loved it and as debuts go, this is certainly one of the best that's come out in recent years. Okay, and that's going to be it for today's episode. Um, you can find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can find me at mastercinemacast.blogspot.com. You can find that 
podcast, also on the Criterion Cast podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at 24Framedcast. And if you want to befriend me on Facebook, I am the Tom Jennings who looks like he's having a wee over the Giants Causeway. I wasn't, of course, I was simply deflecting myself from the rain. But that's going to be it. I will speak to you soon. Many thanks. Bye.